Welcome back to the Gate 15 interview. I'm Andy and your host of this monthly discussion with experts and amazing guests from throughout our Homeland Security community. This is one of our recurring Gate 15 podcasts, which include our weekly security sprint and Dave Pounder's Nerd Out, as well as our other special segments uh, from time to time. Please subscribe and listen and learn more about the threats and risks facing us every day. This month, I'm very grateful to welcome back Mr. Bob Kalaski, who is currently serving as Senior Vice President for Critical Infrastructure at Exeger where he's focusing on developing cutting edge risk management solutions for critical infrastructure companies and supporting government agencies. Bob, it is great to have you back. Thank you for joining me again today. For those that may have missed our discussion back in November, 2021, when you were still serving our nation as a faithful public sector servant, would you mind just maybe sharing a little bit about who you are and your background? Sure, Andy, thanks for having me back. It's great, I must've done something right to earn a, a, earn, <laughs> a return visit. Um, yeah, Bob, Bob, as you mentioned, my job title and stuff. Um, I joined Exeger after leaving government in uh, March of 2022. Um, I'll talk a little bit about what we do at Exeger along the way, but we're, we're really bringing supply chain risk analysis solutions to government and in industry to help stay in front of um, challenges and particularly things important to me, foreign ownership control challenges, things coming from, from China um, that may be risky, uh, cybersecurity vulnerabilities that are introduced in the supply chain. And we're bringing analysis to help companies anticipate that and, and build up alternative supply chains. Um, this was a natural switch for, for me from, from government. I was working on risk analysis and building risk management solutions, working with industry to, to strengthen um, strengthen the security resilience of critical infrastructure. I, I did that at the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, um, where I served, I like to say I served there for 15 years, but of course, as you know, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency isn't that, that old. So I was at CISA um, from, from its founding in um, November of 2018, but, but CISA's predecessor is the National Protection Programs Director at other parts of DHS, um, and left running the National Risk Management Center, which was just this awesome job to have this, this view of seeing how a range of risks at the strategic level could threaten the nation's critical infrastructure and, and trying to stay ahead of those, do, do risk analysis, build risk models, and ultimately put information and work with industry to build solutions to, to, to manage those risks. thing I'm probably most proud of is, is the work that the NRMC did around election security in the run-up to the 2020 election, um, working, of course, with Chris Krabs and Matt Masterson and, and some of the team at CISA. But, but you know, we had the responsibility to build up the election security initiative, and, and that still today is one of the, the things that I think CISA does best. And, you know, we, we have um, supported, at the time, government supported state and local officials to build a much more secure and resilient election system. Yeah, that's it's so critical. I mean, here in Virginia, we've got big elections coming up here in a couple of months. And then, of course, we're running the national elections next year. So, you know, obviously, I, I think everybody's very well aware now of the importance of maintaining uh, the integrity of our elections process. Mm -hmm. It's just so critical. So thank you for all of your work. For, for those of you who are listening that, you know, haven't heard Bob before, I'll share the link to our last discussion in the show notes. You can read his perspective from time to time in Homeland Security Today. You can see him speaking at events such as an upcoming event with the uh, Rand Corporation, just a, a great thought leader. As I was telling Bob before we started recording, he brings just a tremendous amount of experience and a very unique set of experiences over the years that he served in both CISA and its god-awful acronym predecessor, NPPD, probably the worst DHS came up with. But but really glad to have you here today. And Bob, you know, we, we talked a lot over, over the many months. And um, you know, one thing we talked about earlier this year um, we had planned a gate 15. We had planned a workshop um, for May focusing on the always exciting and always controversial topic of mis, dis, and malinformation. I think we're going to start out there with a few questions because we're unable to conduct that workshop for a variety of reasons I won't bore you or listeners with today. 
But uh, for some reasons, uh, we did. We postponed it. And since you're going to join us for a panel there, I thought, well, let me pick that conversation back up and get your perspective now, recorded for all posterity forever. So you've had a chance to consider the complexity of MDM issues, MDM again being missed, this malformation. We're going to talk about that acronym a little bit here as we go. Um, but you've, you've looked at it from both the government's end and from the private sector. And I think we probably share an appreciation for what the government wants to do to protect the American people from MDM, but also appreciate the complexities of that at multiple levels. And we've seen some of that playing out in the courts now as there's pushback on some of the Biden administration's efforts to, to manage the MDM challenges, right? So to start, I'd like to ask you to take a few minutes to share your perspective on how you see the threat of MDM to Homeland Security, or I'd like to say national security. Is there really a threat? If so, where is it coming from? Why should we care? Can you just help us understand what this is all about? Yeah, um, we're, we're going to have a little bit of a semantic discussion. I, I hope your <laughs> listeners don't mind, Andy. Um, you know, my, my a quick not segue, uh, non sequitur maybe. My, my first job at, at DHS um, in 2007 involved efforts to build out the DHS risk lexicon and, and yeah. define words around risk. And a very good document, by the way. A very at, good document. At the time, I was like, why is the government spending money defining words that are already in the dictionary? But but through the test of time and words like what you said, you know, it's stood because these words matter in different contexts and, and you need to define those. I say that because for a second, I want to step back on you, you, you rush to the acronym of MDM, Mistis and Malinformation. Government likes acronyms. They like three letter things. But but let's let's break that up a little, yeah. you know. Um, you meant you mentioned something I did at Homeland Security uh, that I write for Homeland Security today. Um, you know, last year I published a column where I was talking about kind of what's on my Homeland Security Risk Register. What home what risk do I care about? I remember that very risk good piece. Yeah. And one of those I put on there was was disinformation in the information environment. And when we talk about what what has been framed about MDM, let's talk about the information environment as a homeland security threat and risk. And, and you know, I'm, I'm happy to unpack that a little bit. So, so let's start semantically with mis, dis, and malinformation. Those are three different concepts. Yes. Yes. Um, just from a definition standpoint, I, I think it's worth reading the definitions. Right? Misinformation is false information that's not intended to cause harm. Um, Disinformation is false information intended to manipulate, cause damage, or guide people in wrong direction. These definitions are from, from a Canadian document, actually. And malinformation refers to information that stems from the truth, but is often exaggerated in a way that misleads and causes potential harm. They all may end up with harm, but they all start from a different intent perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And so in breaking those down, the one I am most comfortable talking about as a homeland security, national security risk, is different disinformation, particularly disinformation driven by our adversaries. Yeah. And so disinformation, again, false information intended to manipulate, cause damage, or guide people in the wrong direction. I think we can all agree that if somebody adversarially is trying to use information to cause harm, that's a concern to society and, and government. It, it gets a little more complicated with malinformation and misinformation. Um, malinformation, again, accurate information, but then put together in a different way that might lead to harm or violence. I, I would group that in sort of the conspiracy theory type thing where most conspiracies have some root in a, in a real factual information, but the patterns get driven in such a way that people start to believe things that probably are, aren't accurate. And then misinformation is even more complicated because that's, nobody's trying to cause any harm in, in what they do in, in in pushing information. It may be something that somebody believes um, 
and they're just pushing it forward, but it might be inaccurate information. And I, I do think those distinctions are useful when we talk about the role of DHS, the role of the Homeland Security Enterprise, the, the role of government as a whole to address those concerns. You know, let, let's start by focusing with, with this information and then we can unpack some of the some of the ways that maybe in, in addressing disinformation, you run the risk of addressing other information and in, in causing, you know, intruding on people's rights to believe what they want to believe and, and push information out that they, you know, that they think is accurate. I think, I think you've covered, you covered a lot there, Bob. I mean, it's, it's really important, I think, to know descriptions because, you know, you and I having different opinions on a given topic, you're a controversial topic. Um, like you said, there's no necessarily intent for harm, right? And, and so grouping that together with malicious um, information operations from a foreign adversary, very different things, right? Very different things. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to sort of, you know, help us think about that. Because I think you, we have sort of got to a point where now people just say MDM, right? Yeah. MDM. And, and, it, and it's not that simple because those are, it's a huge umbrella and not all aspects of mis, dis, or malinformation require the same maybe response, right? Yeah. Be it government or from social media or whoever we're talking about. So I think it's, it is really good stuff. Would you, in, in, I don't know if you'd answer this, you know, I'll ask you to try and answer it. Should we be talking about them as, as three separate strands and should we get away from that MDM umbrella? I, I'd like to start, and, and first of all, I am as guilty as others as grouping them together. And, you know, some of this is, has the benefit of reflection. Um, you know, certainly when we were, when we were working on these issues at times at, at CISA, you know, we, we grouped MDMs. So I'm not saying, I'm not begrudging anyone for going down that direction, I think, but, but in, in hindsight, you know, there's, there's some ways to do it differently. Again, I, I'd like to start with disinformation, which I think is clearly a Homeland Security, national security risk. Um, and, the the fact of the matter that it it is information that's intended to cause harm and that if you can link disinformation to entities countries nation states organizations that are generally considered potential risks to the country um, yeah. let's talk about the chinese government for a second um and their disinformation efforts i, I think that's useful to to separate that from some of the things that that were considered more controversial in in, in the court rulings, you're, you're the court judgments you're you're talking about, and so you know recently, you, you know within the last within September, NSA, FBI, and CISA put out an, a general warning on on disinformation and, and techniques coming using AI and and false media false media creating false narratives technically. Yeah. Um, as as a risk um, that needs to be considered, and then more specifically, Microsoft talked about the Chinese government um, or ch Chinese tactics to again use AI to create false news stories, false news organizations, false videos um, that that builds off of um, other reporting over the summer of uh, that's something I think the Wolf Network, for example, which is a, a network that doesn't exist. That's a false media network. The Chinese government was propping propping up to create things that look like media reports, yeah. pushing on disinformation. And you know, we are concerned. Good work on the Hill. Good work in the administration. We're concerned about the Chinese risk to the U.S. in a lot of different ways. We should also be concerned and be. be taken seriously the Chinese dis disinformation risk. And, you know, let's start by saying that that's on our table of things that, that clearly 
could be a homeland security and national security yeah, risk. Absolutely. And then let's expand out, right? Let's not group. And, and I think the, the starting with the things that we clearly are, in this case, a country that we think is behaving adversarially to the United States is using information warfare against us. Let's deal with that. Yeah, that's it, it, absolutely right. And that's, it, again, to sort of separate those three terms, that's such a critical difference in, in that effort versus you know, d disagreements, right? I think, I mean, we talk about China. I think it's important to talk about China right now. I think there's there are very legitimate concerns, but I mean, Russia was guilty of this too, right? There's been plenty yeah. of documentation of Russia and deliberately using social media to cause division amongst Americans, among political lines, among racial lines. There's there's interest of some, you know, foreign competitors, adversaries in, in seeing us fight amongst ourselves, right? And that, and that can be used for a whole lot of nefarious purposes and part of broader campaigns and efforts. And and we do want to distinguish between that and you and I disagreeing about you know, vaccines or, or elections, right? Where we have genuine beliefs that maybe are disagreement or maybe misinformed, right? That, that that's possible. That's very different than deliberate information operations and national security risks. And I think that's I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. I think it's a really good point to separate. So, so let's go down the disinformation route a little more on that in terms of mitigation paths, and then maybe shift over to some of the other information yeah, categories. Yeah. And so I like to group disinformation as something that should be dealt with the same way that other security threats are dealt with, going back to our shared experience of information sharing with critical infrastructure companies and enablers of critical infrastructure companies. You know, what you do and, and, and what other ISACs do and, and, and other information sharing organizations is they get accurate information in the hands of private sector entities that can do something to mitigate risk. Yeah. And so in disinformation, you know, when the U.S. government knows about intelligence or actions that, that an adversary an adversary state or, or actor is taking to pass disinformation, that's when the U.S. government should be talking to social media companies. That's when the U.S. government should be talking to media companies as a whole, should be working with industry and ISACs and saying, okay, we see this coming out here may or may not be telling you that you have to mitigate that risk, but we, we, we want you to know that that risk is out there so that you can take mitigation steps. That's the history of critical infrastructure, information sharing and partnerships and yeah. achieving critical infrastructure, security and resilience. And so when somebody asks me, um, you know, should the government be working with social media companies? In my mind, of course, the government should, if the government has information that can help the social media companies take risk mitigation decisions. That was that was the the framework of of some of what we we're trying to do at, at CISA with with what um, you know we we call the switchboard function where it's and and with the regular conversations we have with social media it's hey this is the the threat and risk environment this is the technique environment we want to arm you th with that so that you can make decisions within your terms of service on, on how to mitigate that risk. I, I love the point you're making there, and so we'll, we'll share a link again. There've been you know just recent court rulings you know on this topic of, of government you know social media coordination. Um, it, it's a difficult topic, right? And I think what you're saying really reminds me of the point that I I really, I believe in, right? Is that you know, the best counter to misinformation is simply more accurate information, right? You don't have to, you don't have to necessarily, um, for example, you know, we'll talk about free speech here in a moment. I think it's an important topic to touch on, but you know, were there being concerns expressed by the government and government agencies trying to help suppress information, I'm not saying that did or didn't occur, but that's been a concern, right? Rather than try to suppress information, it, just to have that conversation and say, hey, look, here's the accurate story. Here's the accurate information. They're trying to put the right information out there. And like you said, in open collaboration, 
sharing, hey, here are the facts, right? We are seeing deliberate campaigns yeah. from X, Y, and Z. This is a type of information they're putting out there. And this is where it's like, that is hugely beneficial and transparent and of value. I think similarly to is the way the Biden administration was dropping intelligence on Russia before the invasion of Ukraine, right? And they were just calling it out remarkably candidly as to, you know, Mr. Putin's uh, designs and schemes on the Ukrainian border. That was that was fascinating to me. And I think there's a similar value in just being candid about the types of misinformation being propagated from foreign governments. I think that's great. I think what you're talking about there, that open dialogue is, is super valuable. I think it's a concern about when it goes behind closed doors, the people start to say, whoa, you know, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable about this. So if, if I can just pivot a little bit and please follow up, you know, any thoughts you have there. But I'd like to also hear your thoughts on the challenge of, you know, the government working to what some people feel has been suppressing speech, right? There's been an effort to shut down, uh, limit uh, conversations on social media, otherwise, where it comes to certain what have been controversial topics, right? Whether that's Russia or COVID or other topics. How do we manage some of what we're talking about here and the government's rightful role to help you know put out good information with concerns about free speech and yeah. suppression? How do you look at that? And please go back anywhere else you want to go. That might have cut you sure. off. So, so, so just going back to um, a little bit of what you're describing as a technique, I do want to pull in one one more term and one more definition to yeah, the please, conversation. Please. And that's the idea of risk communications, which again, pulling my from my DHS risk lexicon, the exchange of information with the goal of improving risk understanding, affecting risk perception, and or equipping people or groups to act appropriately in response to an identified risk. Again, risk communications is a, a, a fundamental job of the government and homeland security community as a whole, because don't always look for the government to be the risk communicator, right? Faith leaders and um, NGOs and community leaders and and others can also be part of scientists scientists experts right can all be part of risk communications and the, but the job is there to do exactly what you're saying which is society communities face a risk here's the best available information about the risk to communicate so you can hopefully take appropriate steps. I mean, it's an important concept as it goes to preparedness and emergency management. You know, let's communicate accurately about what the expectation is that could happen with a hurricane and flooding so you can do preparedness. And of course, the government's trying to inspire an activity, preparedness or or, or taking steps to, to mitigate risk yeah. because government has concern, homeland security leaders have concerns about a risk. And, and I think that's an analogous, again, how you deal with missing and malinformation. Um, to your your question where where you you use the word suppress, I will you know make sure to go on the record to say I, I I don't at least while we were at CISA we certainly didn't do anything to suppress I'm not aware of DHS do anything to suppress people's First Amendment rights and that was incredibly important to us civil rights and civil liberties particularly in, in respecting people's civil rights and civil liberties um, was incredibly important to us the overall U.S. government. In, in the court filings we're talking about, which, which stem from a case from the Louisiana and Missouri attorney generals that just went to, in front of the Fifth Court of Appeals, right? There's arguments over whether the U.S. government as a whole suppressed for, for different things. I, I'm not necessarily going to weigh in a, a, on that as a whole because I, I, I don't know the whole scope of what the government did and the, the legal acts of this. But but I think, you, you know, we want to avoid anything that intrudes on people's civil rights and civil efforts and, and suppresses their, their ability to hold an opinion, it gets tougher when that opinion gets closer to leading to violence. 
and you, you know you you have a right up to a certain point but if if, if you know your opinion is going to lead activity that gets to criminal you, you know we we have tradition around a full range of first amendment cases to say you have a right up to a certain point but it, but if we can prove that there's criminal intent and correlation between the information you're passing and and, and trying to inspire crime that's a law enforcement issue. Um, it's 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 hard to exactly get to what the point is as a general rule, but but we 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 can't pretend that everyone has the right to hold every opinion and and promulgate and propagate every opinion if if some of the opinions they're holding are intended to inspire violence and inspire terror, right? So so it, it becomes complicated. I think I want to I want to challenge a little bit the term used, right? Just just to just a challenge a little bit. So I, I mean, we're having a, look your opinion. We're having, right? a, we're having a term debate, right? Yeah, yeah. This this is good. I mean, I think I think it's good. So I'm I'm thinking a lot of speaking. So I, I think it's not a matter. Of, people can have their opinions, but I think the, the key is what you discussed. When we start advocating violent action and and behaving with violent intent, right? That's what you start looking at. Is now we're entering criminal activity, and and that's a distinction, right? Opinions, thought, like I can I can think whatever I want, right? I can think violent thoughts. I can hold absolutely ridiculous opinions. If you ask my wife, I absolutely hold many ridiculous opinions, right? But but it's, it's when we start moving down that pathway to violence, just like a terrorist activity, right? You don't have to wait for somebody to conduct a terrorist act yeah. to stop that act and make that arrest. It's similar with, you know, the words we use, the things we say, like if they're leading down that path of violence, there is a point at which we've now crossed a, a line of criminal behavior, right? I think it, that, that goes beyond the opinion that individual might hold, but rather they're they're encouraging violence, they're encouraging harm. Now, again, that, that's got to be done through proper law enforcement channels, I think you, which you said. But I think it, it's an important distinction, right? I don't yeah. think it's an opinion. Yeah, and you know, I, I think you and I are on much safer ground when we talk about this in a homeland security context. Yeah. In, in that, you know, we can have a First Amendment discussion, we can have government's role, but but neither one of us is a First Amendment lawyer nor nor speaking on government. But but in a homeland security context, you know, you and I both in different ways had experience dealing with particularly concerns in the first half of the last decade about ISIS in the United States. And the idea that ISIS was inspiring um, actions in communities around the country and DHS NGOs invested in this idea of countering violent extremism and, and building up the resilience in certain communities that might be more susceptible um, to the messaging from, from ISIS and the jihad messaging from ISIS. And that seemed to me, and that was a very much a DHS inspiring community action to take on a false ideology, right? Right. So yeah. a false ideology is false information, a, a false ideology and, and to build resilience at the community level, to, to inspire community leaders, to educate about what was wrong with ISIS's, you know, I make a bomb rhetoric. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's part of Homeland Security. Like, and in building up that, you know, so I've talked about, you know, aggressively calling out disinformation and actors doing that, talk about risk communication, but the third area is, is community resilience and critical thinking and, and arming susceptible communities with accurate information, in fact, so that they can counter things, particularly again, you know, from a Homeland Security perspective, when it has a high potential of leading to violent extremism or terror and, and, and you know, not always easy in in the CVE program is certainly controversial at different stages of how we did it and um, how DHS did it at the time. But but again, civil rights and civil liberties 
faith groups, community groups were at the table privacy as we as those playbooks were being written. There was a good amount of congressional oversight. There was good information. There was strategy put in, and that that's part of the important way to build these efforts. And, and they're and they're complex, and they're not fixed problems, right? I think the reality is, you know, there's no one single line in the sand that you can draw and say this is how we manage you know, potential threats, you know, that, that are being discussed in, in, in misinformation, right? It, it's, you've got to sort of assess it. And it's, a, it's a, that's one of the wonderful things about democracy, you're constantly revisiting and challenging these issues because the foreign terrorist threat might be similar to, but different than the domestic terrorist threat, might be different than political rhetoric and violence. And it's not always the exact same solution, but having those conversations brings stakeholders to tables. And, and to be honest, it's so important in those situations to have those relationships and open conversations between government and industry. And, and I just want I, I think it's a good opportunity just to, to, to make a point I think is really important for a lot of the uh, the way that things such as the um, the Twitter files and the Facebook files were written, you know, from the outside looking in, some of that can look you know, very questionable. I mean, being honest, like, I think it can look like without context appreciation, but you know, some of the things were being pulled on some of those threads were, you know, like, look at the the, the communications where people are referring to their you know, colleagues and, yeah. and you know, well, we, we we are colleagues, right? I mean, like there's nothing wrong with leaders in industry, especially those charged with security and, and information management. Mm -hmm. You're working closely with the government partners as respected colleagues. That doesn't mean one's telling the other what to do, mm -hmm. forcing anybody to do anything. But having that conversation, having those channels where you can pick up the phone and say, hey, look, we're concerned about this or, you know, this is what we're doing about this. Like those are important, you know, lifelines to have. They really help all of us be more secure some of those, some of the sort of the articles and assessments of those, you know, uh, social media discussions, I think, I think we're a little bit confusing from the outside looking in. Yeah, I, I mean, I've grappled with, and I, I think I'm comfortable saying the Twitter files is an example of malinformation, right? There, yeah. there is accurate information in there, but the, 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 it, in parts of it, right? They're, they're pulling from information that, that exists, but the, the where they took that information and, and, and the conclusions and some of that information was wildly inaccurate. And, you know, one of the things is, as I was thinking about the Twitter files and reviewing them, is like one of the things I was proud of that, that we were able to do at CIS is a lot of that stuff that they're reporting on, they may have an email or something, or, but it was stuff we were talking about very publicly um, in the face of the Russian disinformation threat coming into the 2018 and 2020 information. We were talking very publicly about our engagement with secretaries of state to get accurate information and state election directors to get accurate information about how the elections worked and how, you know, with the election security and, and what days you voted and, and, and what methods you voted. We we're talking publicly about countering any bad information about those things and providing that information, you know, what's been called a switchboard function to social media companies just so they could see where there was inaccurate information out there. And we were also talking publicly about our meetings with social media companies and, 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 you know, the desire to engage, to give them the best available information to apply their terms of service. Yeah, and I think the point yeah. at the end of the day, they're making and, their own decisions, right? They're yeah. making their own decisions. Well, Bob, this is, uh, this is, I'm going to go two more on, on, this this ugly acronym of MDM, and then then we'll then we'll pivot to other things. But I really appreciate everything you're sharing. Um, for a little quick speed, round, I think you've already answered some of these speed round questions, but I'll ask it again. So I'm going to ask it. Your goal is to try and give a yes or no, but we'll, we'll allow caveats. I think I, I think already for the first one, there's a caveat. So 
So let, let, let's try this. So first, first speed round question, should the government be working with social media platforms to manage content? No. Agree, agree. Should social media content be regulated? Uh, I, I think content, what, what content means there, social media, social media organizations should be regulated in certain areas, but but I'm not sure that means content should be regulated, right? The government should not be making content decisions. Go back to your first question. I like that. Yeah, I like that. Interesting, by the way, unrelated, but interesting. Just yesterday, good Senate discussion on regulating AI. Worth checking out if you haven't checked that out. Um, our last one, was the DHS-led disinformation governance board a good idea? And though it was suspended, should something like that exist? Um, that's a... Not a good yes or no question. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to resist that one. Uh, the the objectives of that board to bring light to DHS's practices to address disinformation were, were a good idea. The, the the name clearly wasn't the rollout clearly had had errors, but but the fact that the board existed to bring more transparency and and put more structure into addressing a key homeland security risk. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think it was a, a well-intended disaster, not not for any one individual's fault or another. It just it just didn't go well. I think there'd be I, I think the idea of it still isn't a terrible idea. I don't think there's a single way to name it that isn't threatening to the American population. To be honest, right? I mean, it, it just there's no really good way. And you can call it information management, whatever it is. It, it sounds nefarious no matter how you do it. But I think the idea of trying to figure out, you know, what's going on in information operations, how do we properly message. There, there's there's goodness in the spirit of that, but uh, but a challenging role. And and uh, there's there have been some other good podcasts that have talked on that very topic with those that have been involved. Um, and I'll share this with some of them as well. So appreciate that. Go ahead. Yeah, and then the last thing, I mean, the the subsequent political debate, ideological debate that colored, I guess, 2022 and still is ongoing in Congress. And so, you know, it's my clear hope that that does not have a chilling of effect on. The Homeland Security Enterprise's willingness to address some of the risks that we were just talking about, and, and that—that's my ma major concern. I mean, all for allowing for political debate and government oversight, but but if that then causes a risk to be unmanaged or unacknowledged, shame shame on us as a Homeland Security community. I agree, and I, I would I would I agree, and I would say I, I don't think that I don't think the government will shy away from it. I don't think that, for example, we have an elections infrastructure. ISAC, I don't think they're going to shy away from their mission. I think what we are going to see is there's going to be a lot of rhetoric and questioning of some of the actions taken. I mean, if you look at Congress today, um, you know, there's a lot of, how do I say this? Uh, Congress is being used as a very good platform for political purposes, for election purposes. We're only going to see more of that sort of, you know, inquiries into how we're managing information coming up to the election. I, I think it's going to be complicated, but I have confidence in both our our public sector and our institutions like the EII SAC that, that they're going to do their mission. I I hope I hope that's a correct assessment. So let's uh let's do one more. And so we've talked about a lot of challenges here in these different buckets of information operations. What can we do to more effectively counter these challenges? What what could the government be doing? What could industry be doing to better support you know our response to information operations across mis mal disinformation 
But I mean, we we talked a little bit about it, tracking and and and, and building out accurate information of, of what's going on. You you, you mentioned the 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 run up of the Russian illegal Russian attack of Ukraine. That also is a conversation about disinformation. Yeah. You know, the Russian government is using information warfare as part of their hybrid war plan against Ukraine, and and so govern. <laughs> um, and, and so building up the ability to suss out and understand where disinformation is coming from and what is disinformation technical means this does morph into the AI discussion and in some of the companies that were involved or social media companies right were involved in the AI dis discussion and so continuing to shine light on tactics and actors who are taking disinformation um having playbooks in, in this I, I keep using the phrase homeland security enterprise and that's very intentional because this is a homeland security wide effort this is not a federal you know we're, we're largely when we say government we're we're drifting back to federal but at different levels, communities should have playbooks to have act, you know, try to build up trust in their spokespeople to be risk communicators. And, you, you know, and this is why this is so complicated to do it well, but you, you have to have, you know, civilians have to have trust in the, their leaders, whether their leaders are politicians or, or in other ways. And, and so building up trust in government, building up trust in institutions, CEOs of companies can have trust, faith-based leaders, community leaders around that. And then, you know, I, I think there is a, also a, a, a you know, a, a broader call for more civic resilience and critical thinking and, and you know, thinking through media literacy and, and all of that. And that goes to education and, and that goes to um, kind of, I know Andy, you have kids, I have kids, right? That's the kind of things that we as parents need to teach our kids and we need to be comfortable that our schools are teaching our kids there. And, and, and teach the kind of civic literacy um you know that's not a that falls away from dhs and the homeland security enterprise that's yeah. a nationwide challenge but one of the things you and i have bonded over is this fundamental love of country right and and you know wanting to teach that into the next generation so that they can in, in love of country means protecting our values right it means protecting our communities yeah absolutely i mean i mean it is a whole of nation challenge and i mean there, there's very points you were, you were saying in the beginning the, 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 the having that trust in our government having trust in our, our, our faith leaders our community leaders that's exactly where some of these foreign um you know information operations are, are trying to go right to, to, to have us questioning everything and everyone right which and that, that that is a great challenge and destabilizing in a democracy and a republic like we have so yeah it's a, it's a complex challenge i think it's really going to take a lot of thoughtful leadership and and not just near-term uh, you know, the, the stress of local school board debate threading today, but really you know, taking a long view at this and how do we really build this resilience into our communities in the long haul. I'm glad there's leaders like you out there that are thinking about this. And I think it takes all of us to work together to you know, figure out how we strengthen the foundations of democracy, which just plays right into. But let's let's get a pivot. Bob, really, thank you for, for all of that. We could talk a lot more about that. I'd love to talk a lot more about that. We're going to pivot a little bit, touch sure. a couple of topics and, 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 and wrap things up. So Last time you were on, we spoke about space of critical infrastructure. That was almost two years ago now. Since then, from a number of corners, there have been calls to formally designate space as critical infrastructure. When we last spoke, you had some mixed thoughts on it. You know, we're looking at critical functions, role you're in. Where are your thoughts on that here as we're in fall 2023? Is space critical infrastructure? Is it still, you know, does it need to be designated critical infrastructure? How do you look at that today? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think I probably said a couple of years ago that I considered space assets part of critical infrastructure already as the current operating environment, part of the communication sector, the defense industrial based sector, transportation, the like. I, I do think now, and, and you know, with a little reflection, I, I do think having a formal call out of space somewhere in the new framework that I hope will come out of the new PPD 21 rewrite and a, a clear statement that space infrastructure is critical infrastructure, even though, again, I would argue now it's 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 there, but but a clear statement and somewhere in the sector designation, I, I think that will be a, have a positive impact. And, and, you know, every two years when we talk about stuff like this, like the importance of space is just becoming more and more important in, in delivering critical functions, right? And, and so, you know, so many of our critical functions are enabled by space. Again, going back to Russia and Ukraine and, and some of the themes we're talking about, this, satellite communications as a target, satellite communications as an enabler for war fighting, um, those sorts of things make clear how critical space assets are and then and the terrestrial assets that, that enable things that are in space. Yeah, so I think my, my, uh, my, my teammate Jennifer Lynn Walker has uh, often said, you know, how critical in, or space infrastructure is critical infrastructure for critical infrastructure. And I just think that's, that's increasingly true every single day. It's just that reliance and dependence. I think um, I appreciate your thoughts there, your statements there. And I think it's just it's just so vital to me that, you know, we, we've seen the partnership model work. Yeah. We've both seen that work. We've seen uh, how much better it is when there's structure and organization around. And I think to me, you know, for the space sector, we'll come together to a known point of contact, the sector's management agency yeah. with the federal government, I think is just increasingly necessary. But it'll be interesting. You've seen, this, you've seen the same thing I have of the enthusiasm around the space ISAC and, yeah. and, and all that. And, and so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little concerned that anything that, doesn't affirm that, in, that what you're just talking about would have a negative impact on critical infrastructure security resilience. Yeah, awesome. Well, I, I appreciate that. That's all for us. Good. I know you're you're always thinking and always open to you know where things are going, and then that's why you're the thought leader that you are today. So before we get back into our three questions round, I always enjoy mm -hmm. what what else are you thinking about? I mean, you're you're looking at China threats, you're looking at the future, you're helping organizations. What is it that's on Bob Kalaski's mind here in September 2023? Yeah, I, I mean. Supply chains, you know, going back to, you know, what we're working on at Axiger and things like that. And supply chains, you know, I, I I think the word security and resilience of supply chains, but I also think availability of the supply base is, is crucial. Um, you know, you mentioned the the web, webinar I did with Rand and, and we were talking about doing contingency planning for supplier supply availability and supply chain disruptions in the face of a potential escalation between U.S. China conflict or China Taiwan conflicts in, in an invasion of China Taiwan or um, economic blockade of, of something of the sorts. Um, the former head of the SEC uh, in, in September, you know, testified and, and talked to the Gallagher Commission. They mentioned about that the companies may have to actually. He may rec you know he was re recommending that publicly traded companies actually report on their exposure to China in China because the, the potential for, you know, geopolitical or, or natural conflicts that limit access to supplies from Southeast Asia is a sufficient risk. And, and so it, it's important to me that that gets elevated at the enterprise level to be a risk supply chains to, to get planned for. And then good on the Biden administration to try to figure out a way to stimulate alternative supply bases and work with industry um, to stimulate alternative suppliers, rare earth minerals, critical minerals, 
semiconductors, microelectronics, components of critical infrastructure you and I love so deeply in terms of the electricity sector and communication sector. And, and let's have less. And, and so if, if, if you, you, you know, that's something I'm thinking a lot about is, is you know, how do we address the, the supply chain risks of um, to, and the implications to our national security and economic security? Yeah, it's, it's a huge topic. I was, like I said, I was on a call just earlier today with a, a critical lifeline sector company. Um, and, and that's exactly where their heads are. They're looking at you know, supply chain risk, potential impacts of, you know, geopolitical destabilization. You know, and, and I, I really commend them for, for doing that. Not enough organizations, I think, have taken the proactive approach to really look at what those disruptions could mean to them. And then downstream, if they're disrupted, what does that mean to, you know, our, our population, our country? It's really important that we do that. And, and, you know, part of business, I think, is, is building that resilience in. I'm glad to see that there are leaders taking that action. I think there's a lot more opportunity for others to do the same thing. And I'll, I'll put one more pitch in for something else. You mentioned space as a critical infrastructure for critical infrastructure. Another category that I, I would put in the same category that I've been doing work on is cloud computing and, and the transition to um, data management operations being managed through, through the cloud service providers and cloud communities. Um, I'm currently working on a project uh, that involves you know the major cloud service providers as well with the Carnegie Endowment of International Peace, where we're looking at resilience of um, cloud infrastructure, how to minimize what I'd call systemic risk that, that moves on. I think movement to the cloud has made our infrastructure more secure in a lot of ways, made our functions more secure, but it's introduced new, new risk vectors and better understanding that risk and then taking steps to build up a resilient cloud infrastructure is another area we're spending some of my time on. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you are, because I think uh, <laughs> I'm glad that your brain and your experience is helping to contribute to uh, making sure there's our secure and resilient in the long haul. There's so many things like the cloud that I think we... Um, we take for granted, right? Just like turning on the water faucet, right? The water shows up, right? You flush the toilet, the water shows up. Similar thing, we turn on our phones, we access our files, we expect them to be there. And I would don't have to think about that there there are, you know, it's not guaranteed, right? Got there, there was a time people thought toilets were magic and, and right? And, you know, now people think clouds and AI are magic, but they're real infrastructure there, yeah. right? They're real yeah. things, like they're more, maybe more complex than toilets, but, but. A little bit, a little bit, but not, but plumbing is pretty complex in and of itself too. I commend the, you know, all, all of those trying to manage. If you spend some time with the water sector, you understand it is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, Bob, thank you for that. Thanks for all you're doing to help build, you know, national security and resilience in, into our foundations here. So let's, let's go to the lighter side of our discussion. Let's jump into some of our three questions. So you remember how this worked at last time. I think last time we, we had some good conversation about guns and roses and pizza and other absolutely critical topics of, of guys our age i think so let's see where we go today like, like i said we're, we're probably around the same age group around the same time i think uh back then kids played outside probably more than you know than, than we do today if, if you were like me we found ways to injure ourselves a lot too i think playing some mm -hmm. of those games uh you know so so growing up were you a skateboard guy a bike guy a scooter guy or a no wheels for me kind of guy uh i was I, growing up i was a no wheels for me kind of guy I, I will say right now i I call myself one of the foremost fans of the motorized scooter and yeah. motorized scooter in an urban environment as much as possible. But, but no, I, I don't think that was an ideological decision. That was a, a, a competency decision into whether to get on a skateboard or not. And, and you know, I, I was a football player, not a skateboarder. <laughs> I'm picturing you right now, like with a scarf blowing in the wind, 
goggles on and, and on one of those mechanized scooters going down. I, I, I swear I advocated that scooters should be a natural critical function, but I lost. <laughs> I can I can hear that conversation happening in the bowels of EHS and CISA today. So all right, well, fair enough. Fair enough. I was for for, for I was I was a bike guy and I crashed so many unbelievable times when I was in the AR so many times. And that trend has continued into my adult life as as uh, as I've been in numerous uh, wrecks since then as well. But that's neither here nor there. So, all right, coming back to present, right? Mm -hmm. So, if you had to live somewhere else, somewhere outside of North America, where would you go and why? If I had to live somewhere outside of North America. Um, I am a simple man. I, I pledge, or I'm an obvious answer. I, I pledge to my son as soon as he graduates high school, my youngest son, that I'm moving to Paris and just enjoying the Parisian life. So, uh, so um, I, I had the, as you know, I had the opportunity to lead an OECD working group and the organization of economic cooperation development and spend time in Paris and, you know, city with energy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. And that's it. It's the energy. Yeah. I think so, so, you know, so New York, I think Paris, New York, London. I mean, there's a reason why, they're often grouped together. There's a there's a whole life going on there that's of its own and unique. Paris is, is it's a beautiful city. Um, as I, as I try to relearn French now after many years away from the language, I'm trying to relearn it. And man, I suck. I suck at my French right now. But it's okay. Duolingo is trying to help me get back to competence. If you so, said it in if you said it in French, it would have sounded better. <laughs> it, it wouldn't have. That's the sad part. It definitely wouldn't have sounded better. But French itself is it, it is a beautiful language. So, all right, good answer. Good answer. So we look forward to seeing you on your scooter in Paris. Look forward to those pictures. All right, last one. This one this might be a little bit harder, a little harder to come up with an answer on the spot. So I'll ask it anyway. If if I were writing your biography, what's the title of the book that you'd like to see? Oh, uh, well, um, <laughs> that's tough. Um, you know, I, I've got some pithy things. I don't I don't know if they work with the title, but but but, I, you know, I, we had this idea, like, as I've been coming, you, you want to try to nudge the world in a better direction, right? And, and I like that idea of nudge the world, right? Yeah. And um, it's because that's about all you can do is nudge, right? And so figure out a way to work that into a pithy title that would cause people to buy books. <laughs> we'll, we'll work on that. I, I, I agree with that. You know, we often have uh, grand wise desires and, and we want to see things a certain way. But in reality, you know, big, big ships turn slowly. You know, nations turn slowly. The world turns slowly. Um, nudging might be the best we can do. And I appreciate all the good nudging that you've you, you've done over the, the, the many years and, and the years ahead. Um, I appreciate that. So thank you, Bob. And that, that was a tough one. Thanks for playing. Yeah. With me. Thank you for sharing on, on the good work you're doing today. Um, at Exeger, thank you sincerely for your thoughts on information operations. It's a challenging, challenging topic. There's a lot more to discuss there. And again, if you roll into the here again, Virginia election season nationwide, it's going to be a big, divisive, stressful election season. Um, there's going to be a lot more talk on information. No, and I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation. And, you know, just like I said, I, I don't think Homeland Security Officials, people working should shy away from these discussions. Let's let's work through them. You know, I felt like that at, at the discussion you were planning to host, and it's it's just like this: we can't have taboo issues in the security yeah. space. We can't have taboo risks. Um, the less thing, you know, I, I was once asked to testify, and I did testify in front of Congress about climate change risk, and DHS was spending too much time. This was in 2015. DHS was spending too much time on climate change, and I, um. You know, one answer I gave was, as a risk manager, like we don't get to pick what the risks are, and you may not agree with 
<laughs> we're not endorsing that as a risk. We're just saying that's the world as it is. And and same thing with disinformation. You know, let's try to eliminate these risks as much as possible. But but we can't stop talking about them because they bring up antibodies. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. And, and sometimes you know, that can be data driven. That's that's assessments that we we make and. And that's our job, right? Is to identify threats, identify risks, figure out how we manage those effectively to, so we can all go about doing the stupid things we like to do in our free time, like riding bikes and riding scooters. And, you know, there's busy things we do, like raising families, you know? So, so Bob, thank you. Thank you for all that open floor for your wrap up. Anything else you want to throw out there? Anything you're up to? Anything you want to promote? Or is any, any thoughts on your mind? No, um, you know, just want to stay out there, you know, kind of, looking at ways to work with industry and government together to mitigate risks. And, and, you know, most of what I'm going to be doing, you know, but at all things is trying to better understand those risks and push efforts to cost-effectively address them. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that and all that you're doing. And if you're listening and you think your company needs help and needs somebody smart to come in and help you understand those risks to help build that resilience, uh, we'll have Bob's uh, you know, contact information. Yeah. You can reach out to him and I'm sure he's more than happy to come help you. Uh, not just me, but Exeger, bringing our whole technology and data capability to support. Yeah, awesome. Well done. Well done, Bob. So on that note, thank you very much. You're always fantastic to talk with. You always leave me thinking about things. I'm going to listen to this here after it publishes. And I'm going to publish it a couple of times and think more and have a million questions I wish I would have asked you. I'm looking forward to uh, to going back and getting that listen. So thank you again for being my guest. You're always welcome back and to be a, a every other year event. Thank you to our listeners for being part of our Gate 15 community. We appreciate you subscribing, listening, and rating our podcast. They're all available on the same channel that you're hearing this interview today. So uh, give us those five stars like your favorite Uber driver. We appreciate that. Share your feedback back with us. We're now on Threads. We're excited to be there, building our community there. Join us there. And we'll have that conversation as well as on LinkedIn, on X, formerly known as Twitter, whatever it wants to call itself today. You can reach out to us at email at podcast at gate15.global. Until next time, Bob, thank you very much. And to those listening, have fun, live free, and try to be at least somewhat reasonably safe. Thanks for listening today.